Welcome to the Recess Nurse Podcast. Elevating emergency nursing, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. The topic of today's episode will be a patient having a confirmed STEMI and your patient has to go to that cath lab right now. I have special guests that came onto the show and we wanted to talk about what is the best way to get our patients from the ED to the cath lab. This is a CMS reportable event and your patient has to have a door to needle time of 90 minutes or less. The conversation went so well and we went over so many topics that today will be part one out of two. Enjoy. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a really special episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. I have a wonderful guest, Marcus Dela Cruz. He is a registered nurse. He used to work in the emergency department primarily, but now he works in the cath lab primarily. And also, uh, he he does some shifts in the PACU. So we've got a lot of experience here. And something that we wanted to discuss today is how to make the smoothest transition for your patient going from the ED to the cath lab, especially when you know, wow, my patient has a STEMI and you get a doctor coming in, your patient's going to the cath lab. So what do you do? Uh, I'm bringing in Marcus and he is going to help us figure out what's the best transition. What's, what's the stuff that the cath lab nurses, cath lab team will need to have the quickest and the most efficient and the best outcome for your patient having a STEMI. Um, so welcome to the show, Marcus. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Hello, everyone. My name is Marcus. And as CNC said, I am, I have been a nurse in the ED for a long time. I wouldn't say how long, but yeah, um, ED. And then I moved to the cath lab and it's been a very good journey so far. Um, yeah, it would be nice to discuss how we would have your patients come to be, to be my patients upstairs and how we could do it so smooth and safe for both the patients and the nurse. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. Okay, so the first question is, um, your patient, okay, so I have a patient, I'm in the ED and wow, like this patient ha- clearly has an MI. I mean, it can't be any more clear um, that the, these are true ST elevations. Calf fellow comes running downstairs, you know, forces the paperwork to get consent from the patient. Um, so what what should I be doing to prepare my patient going for a very emergent, like this patient has to go to the cath lab right now? What do I have to do so that the patient is getting the fastest and the best care to get a PCI, which is the treatment? Okay, so this is establishing the fact that we have already determined that this is a STEMI patient, right? You did, when patient arrives in the ED, you did an EKG, or usually what happens, EMS calls you up, we have a STEMI coming in, and when the patient comes in, you immediately do your EKG. If you have an extra set of hands, we want your IVs um, established. Um, and then, of course, you know, we go through all the emergency stuff, like if, is, it, uh, is the patient uh, airway established and all those things. But once this is an established STEMI patient, and your fellow comes down to consent the patient and says that we're taking the patient to the cath lab. Um, some very important important things that you need to do is, like I said, start your IVs. 
Um, I know it can be very picky when it comes to IVs. Um, let me just tell you a quick, uh, give you a quick overview of what happens and how the procedure is done once the patient gets to the lab. So there's two approaches to the, uh, to the cath. We could either get to the heart through your right radial artery or through either groins, the left and the right groin. So um, the preferred site for my IVs would either be your right AC, the forearm, without covering your wrist down to the hands. Why? Because when we do access your right radial artery, after the procedure, we put a band on it. So that keeps the patients from bleeding after the procedure. If you have an IV that's sticking out on your wrist or your hands, well, the hands, you barely can put anything medwise because it's clamped. So it has to be above your wrist, the forearm, your ACs. We would prefer it to be on the left because once the patient is on the table, the doctors are going to be on the right side of the patient and the nurses are working on the left side. So those things are important. Now you know why we don't want them anywhere near the wrist or the hands. Below the wrist is going to be useless because after the procedure, it's going to be clamped off. None of your meds, none of your IVs are going to come through. It has to be forearm, the right forearm or the right AC, or the left hand, left arm pretty much, wherever you can get. So those are the things, because uh, again, when, once, we get, once the patient gets to the lab, um, your IVs are our lifelines. And we thank you for that. It's uh, one of the skills that we develop in the ED. Those are the things that we, you know, not most of the nurses can do. And we praise the ED nurses for being able to do that for us. And so that's why it's important for us. We push meds, we start drips, we put everything um, through the IVs that you established downstairs. How many IVs do you really need to send a patient to the cath lab? Okay, ideally, we would need two, at least two. If you can throw in a third, that would be perfect. So two IVs, again, preferably right AC, right forearm, or the left arm. Two minimum, three is heaven. Why the hell do you need so many IVs? That is a very good question. Well, sometimes or most of the time, we do need to start drips. And if, we, if the patient crashes, we do need a, a dedicated line to push our emergency medications. We can't push something over, a, let's say, an integralin drip that's going because it might not be compatible with the drug. So if we have as much as IV lines, uh, these are important to us because then we can have a dedicated line for emergency medications. We can have an, a dedicated line for resuscitating fluid resuscitation. We have a dedicated line for a drip. So pretty much those are the reasons why we need three IVs. When you bring the patient to the lab, always slap on your defibrillator pads because on the way, we don't know what, what might happen. And I don't know what happens, but in my facility, there seems to be some confusion between the kinds of pads that you put on. It, 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 it will matter. Why? Because some pads block the x-ray. They're not radiopics. They're not radiolucent. So when we shoot, when we do a fluoroscope, sort of like an x-ray of the heart, it blocks the view. So you want to make sure that your facility has the radiolucent or uh, radio radiolucent uh, defibrillator pads, so we don't have to move them around once they get to the lab. Um, also, your leads. I know it's a little things, but we also take them off. But the leads can sometimes block the views and can misinterpret, you know, get the wrong reading of the views of the heart. Very important is your consent. Of course, uh, we have to make sure that the, the patient is consented. Other the other things are, I think, the question of. What meds, right? Uh, what meds do you give? Um, top of my head, I think two things come into mind. Number one is your aspirin. 
give, have to give a full dose of 30, 325. I know EMS gives about maybe 164. So just add up, complete it to 324. If they didn't, just to give a full dose of 325. Second one is heparin, which is very controversial. Um, if it's a certified STEMI case and if you obtain the order, IV, it's always intravenous. Um, why? Um, when the patient gets to the lab, um, we insert catheters, we insert wires into the artery. Uh, the thing is, some of these wires are, are hydrophilic. They attract blood cells. So they clot uh, faster. That's why we want your blood anticoagulated. So when we start the procedure, we don't have to worry. If we need to give more, then we give more upstairs. But we want to establish that it is safe for us to put in all those wires and all those balloons and catheters without jeopardizing the patient. So the common question that people are always concerned about with the heparin. Okay, so, so you know, thank you for explaining why we're giving heparin IV. Please do not give your heparin sub-Q. It is not going to do anything for these patients. Um, uh, this is not your routine um, inpatient uh, who just needs uh, heparin sub-Q to prevent, uh, you know, whatever DVTs. But th this is a patient who already has a clot. That's what the STEMI is. There's a clot in, in, in the heart vessel, and it needs to be unclogged. So, so now I think a concern that a lot of nurses have is, well, I'm not going to give the heparin until I get that PTT and INR result back because I don't want my patients to start bleeding everywhere. And the answer is you're going to give the heparin IV regardless of your PTT and INR. And Marcus is going to explain why. Okay, so don't worry about your INR. I, that's number one. Don't worry about the INR. Once the patient gets to the lab, we have our fancy equipment where we can measure real time what your quote, air quotes INR are. It's called the ACT machine. Machine. It's the activated clotting time machine that we, once the patient gets access, once we get access, we draw the blood, we put it in the machine and we determine. But we always want it to be above normal anyway. So it has to be above normal. So we, it doesn't clot anymore. Like Yancy stated, there is an existing clot. We don't want it to progress. Neither don't we want. Uh, neither do we want our equipment that we put into this uh, patient to attract more clots. So don't worry so much about your INR. Um, it's weight based. It is a proven fact that it will help if it it's given IV, and if it if you get over the above normal, well, guess what? That's the goal. And we check it upstairs if it's therapeutic, non therapeutic. If we need to give more. Otherwise, in worst case scenarios, we just give an antidote upstairs if there is a need. But most of the time, don't worry so much about your INR. We'll, we'll take care of it. You did a good job putting in your IVs, giving your meds. We'll take care of it upstairs. Oh, the other thing that I almost always forget. They always just, oh, we gave nitro. We gave nitro for your male patients. Remember, these patients have some sort of erectile dysfunction. Make sure that they're not taking any Viagra. Because if you do give your nitro, guess what? Your pressures are going to bottom down and we're going to end up with more problems. So since we also give nitro in the lab, um, you need to tell us how much you gave. If it's sublingual or which if there's a paste on, I don't know if that's still a thing. Um, yes. <laughs> 
yes, the paste and the ointment is still a thing. Um, and so, and the sublingual tabs. Uh, and the sprays. And the sprays. So, so right. Um, again, just check with your hospital policy. If it were a paste, I would suggest to your attending to, if you could take off the paste and give sublingual, because obviously sublingual is faster. And I don't want to accentuate the effect later that while I'm giving nitro in the lab, oh, guess what? The paste is still working. So we don't want to overdose the patient. And again, careful with your nitros if they're on any form of Viagra or Cialis. Um, yes, aspirin, like I said, we want a full dose. We always want the full dose. There is a debate between the Plavix or your um, Brilenta. These are, again, we can never tell. Some, some I've, And I have encountered that where the EKG is an obvious STEMI, but when they get upstairs, oh, suddenly it's clear. Guess what? The clot, the clot is cl gone, so I don't need to put a stent in. Therefore, my Plavix uh, is useless. So then again, just check. We don't usually give them downstairs. A full dose, by the way, is 600 milligrams instead of your usual 75. Um, and we give them post-PCI. Uh, Once we deploy the stent, or even before we deploy the stent, we usually give the Plavix already. But it helps. The aspirin also helps, only because... Uh, and the Plavix will accentuate the effects of aspirin to keep the stents open and to keep uh, the stents from clotting at least in the next 24 hours. That's why we load it with 600. So then again, just check with your uh, policies if you are able to give Plavix. But then again, yeah, just uh, maybe we will leave it to the lab to give it because we're not sure whether this patient is definitely going to get a stent or not. So, okay, let, let's go over. So we went over aspirin, we went over heparin, we went over Plavix. Um, let's go over some of these other medications that, you know, some of your patients may be getting um, prior to going to the cath lab, getting your PCI. Okay. So we've covered STEMI. Um, I would like to stress out, yes, that's right. Uh, if you always remind your attending to order your aspirin and your heparin, if they're going to the cath lab, either way, whether they're going to get the stent or not, these two medications are a go. It's always a go your aspirin 325, and your heparin. I've explained to you why we needed the heparin IV, and the aspirin is going to accentuate that effect. As for elective PCIs, right? Some of them, when we come in the morning and they're boarded in the ED, they've been there, it's an NSTEMI, it's a non-SE elevation MI. A couple of things that you may be finding with the patient, they could be number one on a heparin drip, which was already probably started the night before, other things that you could find in the patient is your integralin drip that could be started. Uh, again, with this, if you're the one starting, make sure you give the bolus dose to accentuate your, uh, to help out your drips. Um, again, don't worry too much about your INRs. If it's, a non if, if it's an NSTEMI, you're able to check it six hours anyway. And if they're going to the lab, again, I'm telling you, we have ways of finding out, so don't worry about it. Um. If you're unsure what the six hour thing is, generally speaking, if you're on a heparin drip, um, you should, so first you have a loading dose and then you put the patient on a drip. And then in six hours, you would just draw another PTT INR. And then there should be goals. So based on the result of that, um, PT, it's really a PTT INR, um, then you can adjust your dosage rate um, to get a goal APTT. So even if you get the goal, you would still just draw in six hours 
another PTT INR just to make sure that that person maintains um, in in that therapeutic range. Right, and therapeutic can it's very it's a rel- relative term. Um, therapeutic for the lab is above normal because we want it to be anticoagulated. We don't want so if we look at the anatomy of uh, a, a, of a clot in the heart, it's always uh, there, there's there's uh, accumulation of clots that's blocking the artery, therefore blocking blood su- su- blood supply to certain parts of the heart. So you want that to not progress as it is, we or lessen it. Sometimes we do the thrombolytics, right? Uh, that's the other thing. So uh, you might experience, and I've, I think I've had that one time where it was. We had a snowstorm. Anyway, nobody could come in, but there was a STEMI. They ended up having to give a thrombolytics for the patient. So that's the other thing. Know your doses for your thrombolytics um, and inform the lab where we are, what time it was given, if you had any other drips that are going with your uh, thrombolytics. If you are uh, a heart care centers uh, that accept patients from other facilities who have potentially given, who are not a STEMI center and they gave thrombolytics, what is the safe way to handle this patient? So once, you, once they get to the ER, uh, I know they keep telling us, oh, you can't draw blood, you can't, draw, you can't do this. Um, uh, but that goes mostly with the stroke. Um, again, just check with your hospital policy how it is done. But if they are on, if they were giving thrombolytics and they will go to the lab, uh, just check with your attending or the cardiologist if you still want to maintain a heparin drip. Again, the concept of that there is a clot. You may have revascularized, um, busted that clot with your thrombolytics, but we don't want it to come back. Therefore, you still want to maintain a therapeutic level of your um, APTT for the patient. So make sure that that is maintained even before the patient goes to the lab because it will help a lot with how we go through the patient safely transferring from the ED to the lab. Um, so thrombolytics are important, but of course the preferred method of uh, unblocking the clot is to go to the lab. But if you do get them, it's important to, if you're getting report from another facility, make sure you know when it was started, how long it has been there, are there any other drips? Because then if they had not started the heparin for like, let's say six hours, uh, that, that could be a problem. So, and again, I'm not telling you to start it right off the bat, but... Um, just check with your attendings and your cardiologist. In other words, if you get a patient that received thrombolytics and hasn't received, hasn't been on a heparin drip for hours and you receive this patient, probably one of the first things you should do is say, hey, we need, you know, let's double check, but we should start this patient on a heparin drip. And it's okay to go up to your doctor and say, say this, um, you know, because the last thing you want is, okay, maybe the thrombolytics were working, uh, as Marcus said, and, you know, maybe that was all that patient needed. And maybe this patient now doesn't even need to get a PCI. I mean, maybe they need a stent. Who knows? But the point is, is that, um, you know, it, it, maybe this patient has a little bit more time and it's now turning into more of an elective PCI versus an emergent one. So if the patient's not in this therapeutic range, you can actually create another clot. And then and then so it's it's like you're going back to square one instead of moving forward with this patient. Um, so don't be afraid to speak up and say, hey, you know, um, this patient isn't on a heparin drip. And maybe when you received the report, um, there was no heparin drip mentioned. And you can ask, actually, when 
when that when you're receiving the report, um, are you planning on starting a heparin drip or did you start a heparin drip? Um, these are some of the questions that you probably should ask when receiving report for an incoming uh, patient if you're if you are the receiving facility. Metformin is important because metformin. Uh, you have to find out. At least it's it will not matter. Again, it's uh, the, this, the priority on this is low, but it's a good to know thing. Metformin interacts with your dye. It can make the patient nauseous and dizzy. So it's good to know for us if the patient is diabetic. So we will know whether this patient is on a oral hypoglycemic agent because these things interact with the dye. So in the middle of the procedure, patients get nauseous, they vomit, then airway becomes a problem. So it's a good to know thing. So what are you doing? Are you giving Zofran prior to? Well, if, if that happens, then we, we all, we, yeah, you're right. The drug of choice is Zofran. Um, again, we try to just save the airway so much because they're flat on bed. Remember, the, the lab has a table that's flat. So it's so hard. And then any movement, especially if we are in the middle of deploying the stent, and you dodge that stent and it gets deployed in a different area. Uh, yeah. So it's very important to like, just keep the airway open and tell the patient to just let us know what kind of meds you have. With metformin, if it's an elective PCI, the patient has been boarding in the ED um, and he is on uh, oral hypoglycemic agents such as Genuvia, metformin, we hold it 24 hours to just uh, for the body to uh, digest it a little bit keep it out because, again, it interacts with the dye. We don't want the patient to get nauseous and get side effects uh, between the dye and um, metformin. So now, remember, you have a patient. It's a determined STEMI. This patient is going emergently to your cath lab, and they are going to get PCI. So um, obviously, this is a CMS reportable event. So that's why we're going over this. So what is the fastest way? So um, you have to get your patient butt naked. Uh, I don't know how many <laughs> I feel like on every episode, I'm telling you to get your patient butt naked. This is a very good reason to get your patient butt naked. You need initial vital signs. You need a weight. You need a height. And you got to get rid of all of the other property as well. So do it quickly. You just strip them naked, get rid of all their jewelry, um, you know, and make sure you document where this property is going to, whether it's in uh, to a family member, if it's a family member or a friend with patient's consent, um, you should write down that person's name and at least the phone number um, and put it in the chart. Otherwise, it's going to go to security. This is one of those things that um, you should tell your cath lab nurse as well. Uh, we mentioned already an EKG. You need to do an immediate EKG when this patient comes in. Whether an EKG was done already or not, you're going to need another EKG. And in fact, in my opinion, while the patient is still in the ED, just leave the EKG leads on there because as soon as that cat fellow comes down, he's going to want another EKG to see, right, like has it progressed, has it changed? Um, and then you're going to need your telemonitoring and your transport monitoring. You might as well have that all ready to go on the patient. Um, and then finally we have the consent, which is done by the fellow. 
And what I like to do is as soon as the fellow is done, I always end up being, you know, we're the nurse. We're going to be the ones most likely witnessing this consent. I usually tell the fellow, hey, I'm just going to make a copy of it real fast and I'll give you the original. The fellow will have the original copy and then I actually take my copy and then I have um, my uh, clerk scan it into the chart. So there's two copies of it. Um, just in case, uh, we should ask either the patient or EMS, you know, what medications they take, because some of these patients, they're smart. They say, you know what? I took an extra uh, baby aspirin. And then so you ask, did they take a baby aspirin this morning? And then they took, you know, so you should calculate. All right. We already discussed uh, IV Medlock and the preferred sites, right? So um, vital signs, of course, are very important. Um, as a cath lab nurse, it is very helpful to know kind, how stable my patient is coming up to the lab is. Is the patient in cardiogenic shock? The only way to find out is through my vitals. The patient's hypotensive. The patient is tachycardic, short of breath, um, clammy, cold, about to pass out. There's changes in mentations. These are all signs of cardiogenic shock. And this would entail an extra level of preparation for the lab because we need to prepare other equipment so we could do we could address uh, the problems uh, cardiac-wise. So that's why your vital signs are important. Part of the vital signs, at least for STEMI patients, are your height and weight. Your weight, because all of our medications are weight-based. Um, Integralin is weight-based. Uh, Riopro is weight-based. Bivalrudin is uh, weight-based. Everything in the lab, well, almost everything is weight-based. That's why we need a weight on the patient. And I understand as a person who used to work in the ER, we don't have the fancy scales on our beds, but a good approximation would uh, help. Um, I would say in the years of your practice in the ER, you would be able to know how much a 200 pound patient weighs or ask the patient, right? Um, ask the patient how much he or she weighs at least the last time he did. Now for the height is important too. Like I've discussed, uh, well, I've told you about cardiogenic shock, which probably is another topic, but Height is important. Why? Because if a patient is in cardiogenic shock, we need to get into the heart arteries. If it's, uh, the patient is in cardiogenic shock, most of these vessels are collapsed because there's, no, there's not a lot of circulation. The heart is not pumping enough blood. Therefore, these are collapsed. So, so we, sometimes we need to insert a balloon pump, an intra-aortic balloon pump, which we have to go through the groin, which is why you need your patients to be butt naked when they get up to the lab. So, the balloons come in sizes. We have a 30 cc balloon, a 40 and a 50 cc. And these are height based. The taller your patient is, the bigger the balloon we need to put in. So that is why we need uh, at least an approximation of the height or ask, again, ask the patient. It's important to know. And even then, if it's not a cardiogenic shock, who can say? It can turn sour in the next second that he's in the lab. Um, uh, Yancy mentioned property. Um, Jewelry, more importantly, because if you have necklaces that are long, they have a lot of blings, they can get into the way of uh, the x-ray. Uh, most of these cover the view of the heart. So anything that's above, most importantly, your left chest should be clear of any metallic objects. Anything that's within your right wrist should be clear of your uh, jewelry. Watches, bracelets, and everything that's on the wrist, have, they have to go. And um, I know some, because we are, my area is a very varied, um, it's a very diverse population where people have religious beliefs and things, and we do respect that. But in cases of emergency, unfortunately, this have, they have to go. Um, again, it's very important to tell me to know 
for me to know once I give my report to the uh, CCU to find out where this property is. So whether it's vouchered, whether it's uh, given to the family member. Uh, as a point of uh, precaution, I would also usually ask an ID from the person who took the valuable, just so, you know, push comes to show, you can tell them who took it. I have an ID. So that is safe practice. Um, defibrillators, okay, versus uh, monitors. I want a defibrillator on my patient. Don't put it on a monitor. It's useless. Because I want the pads to be on, so it's an easier transition from your machine to my machine. I just pull it off your machine, plug it in my machine. My machine. You can take back your machine to the ED. I have my defibrillator on. So be careful between... A defibrillator and a monitor. I always want a defibrillator. And it's not so much to ask. So, um, Question, is it, if you have the ability to put both on, let's say you have an unstable patient that's going to the cath lab, I personally would want, obviously, the defibrillator, but I may also want to put a, you know, like a transport monitors of some sort, just so I can like, you know, maybe maybe I'm I, this patient is in cardiogenic shock, and I'm concerned about the blood pressure, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, is that something? I mean, obviously, we'll have the defibrillator pads on there, and we can just switch it out quickly. But you know, does that hinder your uh, when you're receiving the patient? Um, it, again, it will vary uh, on your facility's equipment. Some of the defibrillators are equipped with blood pressure monitoring, and your saturations are there. If they don't. It would be preferable if you have a transport monitor that would have all of your um, vital signs covered. Um, only because you're worried so much about transport between the ER and the lab. Anything can happen. Uh, a patient who is in STEMI is very unstable. Some people would have STEMI for hours and they're stable. Some people would have a STEMI and in the next minute, it's crashing down. So you never really can tell. Again, it's also a matter of where the clot is, where, which vessel is affected, how much of the heart is affected. So there are the things that we can discuss. But in terms of transport monitoring, I would suggest the best possible means of getting enough of your parameters within the patients. So this is a great place to stop. Stay tuned for the next episode, which will be part two on this cath lab series. We're going to talk about sending your patient to the cath lab post-ROSC. So stay tuned for that. And as always, go to recessnurse.com for all of the show notes. This is Yunsi Dursa, your host. Peace. You've just listened to an episode of the Recess Nurse Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Yunsi Dursa. Check out the website, recessnurse.com, for show notes, a place to leave your comments, and start a conversation. You can also follow me on iTunes, Twitter, and Facebook. 